Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Dr. Jeffress is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. The movie The Last Emperor tells a fascinating story about how a young boy was anointed as the emperor of China, the last emperor of China. He's surrounded in the lap of luxury. He has a thousand eunuch servants. And one day his brother visits with him and says to him, what happens when you, the emperor, does something wrong? And the young emperor says, that's easy. When I do wrong, one of my servants suffers. And to illustrate, he takes a vase and he drops it on the marble floor. It shatters into a million pieces. And then he calls for one of his servants to be beaten. You know, Jesus Christ reversed that ancient pattern. When we, the servants, do wrong, it's King Jesus who suffers. Philip Yancey said, grace is only free because the giver of grace has borne the cost himself. Today in our study of Abraham, we're going to come to the most clear verse in the entire Old Testament that explains how God takes our sin and he exchanges it for his righteousness. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 15 as we discover what happened the night Abraham was saved. Genesis chapter 15. Now, it's key to understand what had happened immediately before the event we're going to look at today. Remember last time we saw in Genesis 14 how Abraham had led that daring rescue uh, group to come and to save his nephew Lot. Lot had been taken captive by King Cater Laomer, and uh, Abraham rescued him. And instead of keeping all of the loot that had belonged to Cater Laomer, Abraham surrendered that. And he wanted to make sure that God was the one who got the glory for this action and not himself. And then remember, Abraham started to have regrets about what he had done. He started to fear what would happen if King Caleb uh, regrouped and came and attacked Abraham. And what happened if sometime in the future Abraham needed the treasures that he had willingly given up? And in Genesis 15, 1, God said to Abraham, do not fear, for I will be your shield and I will be your reward. That was God's promise to Abraham. Unfortunately, Abraham wasn't about to let it rest with that. We understand his question in verse 2. He said, but Lord, what will be, oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. See, Abraham understood the promise. Way back when he was 60 years of age, in Genesis chapter 12, God had said, Abraham, I am going to give you a land 
that will belong to you. I will make you the father of a great nation, and I'll give you a blessing. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Abraham understood that promise. That promise is what caused him to uproot his family and head to that land he had never seen before. This is what we call the Abrahamic covenant, a land, a seed, and a blessing. And God made that promise to Abraham and his descendants forever. And by the way, that covenant is still in effect today. Thursday, I interviewed newly elected Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We're going to air it next Sunday after our iCampus. And we talked about that Abrahamic covenant that promised a particular land that would belong to the Jewish people forever. It wasn't just a land. It was uh, a nation. It wasn't just a nation. It was a blessing that would extend to all of the earth. But Abraham also knew he got that promise when he was 60. He was now in his early 80s, and there was no sign of a son anywhere. I mean, Abraham understood that to be a father of a great nation, you had to first of all be the father of one person. And he wasn't the promise of a father of anyone yet. And so he says to God, God, is this guy Eleazar my servant? Is he the fulfillment of the promise? Verse four, then behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir And then in verse 5, to seal that promise, God takes Abraham outside. The sun is setting. The sky is becoming dark. And there are stars everywhere. And remember what God said to Abram in verse 4. He said, Abraham, look up. Look up and look at the stars and see if you can count them. And Abraham begins counting them. One, two, three, four, Lord, I can't count all those stars. He says, exactly, so shall your descendants be. And then, verse 6, the most important sentence in the entire Old Testament, verse 6, then Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. This one verse explains how it is that everybody is saved, not just Abraham, not just the Old Testament characters, but how you and I are saved today. The way we are saved has not changed. It has always been the same saying, write this down. We are saved by God's grace, received through our faith, and based on Christ's death. Let me say it again. Everyone Anyone who is a Christian today is saved the same way Abraham was saved. We are saved by God's grace, received through our faith and based on Christ's death. Now, to understand this verse, I want you to notice two parts of it. First of all, Abraham believed God. It says he believed God. What did he believe about God? Did he just believe that God exists? No. It wasn't that he just believed that God existed. Some people think you can go to heaven because you believe that God exists. You don't get any credit for that. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool has said in his heart, 
There is no God. That Hebrew word fool literally means moron. It takes a moron to come to the conclusion that those stars just got there by accident, that this world came into existence by accident. You know how the secularist, the atheist, the humanist explains everything that we look at and see around us? His formula that explains everything is nothing times no one equals everything. Who would believe such a thing that out of nothing came all of this without any divine hand, any divine creator? No, it's not enough to believe God. He believed in God's promises. That's what he believed that was counted to him as righteousness. What was that promise? It was a promise I just told you from Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. It's going to be yours forever. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. Those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. And then he said, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That was the spiritual component to this promise. It just wasn't a land. It just wasn't a nation. It was a spiritual blessing that involved a redeemer who would forgive the world of sin. How do I know that was a part of the promise? Because Paul said it was. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Hold your place there and turn over to Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. It quotes this verse from Genesis 15, 6. Even so, Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, Paul says, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Who are the true descendants of Abraham? It's not just those who come from Abraham's natural seed. It's those who are part of his spiritual seed, who are related to Abraham through faith. The promises that God made to Israel are promises to believing Israel, not to unbelieving Israel. It's to believing Israel and Gentiles as well. Verse 8, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Isn't that interesting? God preached the gospel to Abraham. So then, those who are of faith and are blessed with Abraham, the believer. I don't know how much of the gospel Abraham understood. I don't have any idea. God preached the gospel to Abraham. But at the very least, Abraham knew there was a redeemer coming, someone who would forgive him of his sins how much Abraham knew, how much the average Israelite knew, we don't know. But you know, it's not that important because a person, now listen to me, a person is not saved by his faith. Did you know there's never been anybody who has been saved by faith? You can't have enough faith to save you. We are not saved by faith. We are saved by God's grace that we receive through faith. It's a big difference. Abraham was saved by grace, just like you and I are saved by grace. But pastor, how can somebody who lived almost 2,000 years before Christ, how can that person be saved? Have you ever wondered that? How were people in the Old Testament saved before Christ ever died for their sins? Again, we're all saved the same way, by God's grace, received through our faith, based on the death of Christ. 
the Old Testament characters who believed they were saved on credit. That's how I explain it. They were saved on credit. Now, we see that every day in our lives. Let me explain, use this illustration. Let's imagine that you need a brand new television set to watch Pathway to Victory. Your old set has gone out. So you need a brand new set. The only problem is you don't have the cash to buy the set. You don't have money in the bank to write a check to pay for the set, but you can go to Best Buy, you can select a $2,000 television set, and you can walk right out without ever giving any cash or writing a check. You know how you do it? You put this little worthless piece of plastic, you put it in that little machine, and voila, you own a television set. Now that little piece of plastic is worthless. It's not worth anything but it is simply a promise to pay. Because 30 days later, you'll get a bill, and you pay the bill, or at least the minimum payment, don't you? That card represents a promise to pay. It's the same way with how the Old Testament saints were saved. They believed whatever revelation God gave them. When Adam and Eve put on that covering that was made from an animal skin, when Noah built an ark, when Moses and the Jews sacrificed animal after animal, none of those things had any worth in and of themselves. They were worthless, those, act, uh, those acts of faith. The ark couldn't save Noah from eternal damnation, nor could that animal covering, nor could the animal sacrifices. They simply represented a demonstration of faith and a promise to pay. And guess what? The bill came due on Mount Calvary. 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ paid our sin debt. Remember what he said in John 19.30? It is finished. die, paid in full, literally. Now, that's how Abraham was saved. That's how you and I are saved today. We are saved by God's grace, received through our faith based on the death of Christ. Hold your place here and turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. There are three places in the New Testament that talk about Genesis 15, 6. This is one of those passages where Paul is making the point that salvation is not by works, it's by God's grace. Look at chapter 3, 28. For we maintain that a man is justified, made right with God by faith apart from the works of the law. Now look at chapter 4, verse 1. There is no break in the original text. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Paul knew what the objection of his mainly Jewish audience would be to this idea of salvation by grace and not by works. They would say, well, look at Abraham. Look at our father Abraham. Abraham was to the Jews what George Washington is to Americans. He was the father of the nation. And they started pointing out all of these good things that Abraham had done. He obeyed God. He went to a foreign land. He was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac and on and on and on. Wasn't Abraham saved by his works? No, Paul says. Look at verse two. For if Abraham was justified by works, 
He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And here's that quotation, Genesis 15, 6. Then Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then Paul explains, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but simply is what is due. You've heard me explain that before. If salvation is something God owes us for the good we've done, then there's no grace in that. God is simply giving us what we deserve. When you get your paycheck every two weeks or every month, you don't go in and fall down and say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, boss man, for this paycheck. You're so gracious to have given it to me. No, he owes it to you. He owes it to you if you worked for it. If we get to earn our salvation, Salvation is not a gift, it's an obligation. And ladies and gentlemen, God refuses to owe any man or woman salvation. It is a gift. It is completely of grace and nothing of works. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due, verse five, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, is credited as righteousness. There it is. It is not through our working. It is through God's grace received through faith that we are declared righteous. And then he uses the example of David, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes David, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sin has been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. You say, what's the application for us today? What's the application for me? Very simple. You have a choice about how God is going to judge you. You can choose to allow God to judge you on the basis of your righteousness, and you're gonna come up woefully short, or you can choose to allow God to judge you by the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, and you'll have enough righteousness to be received into heaven. You choose how God is gonna judge you by your righteousness or by the righteousness of Christ. Now, since we're talking financial transactions, let me give you uh, an illustration of that. Let's suppose that you need a house. You really want a house. The only problem is, like everybody almost, you have to go to the bank to get a mortgage. And the bad news, the worst news is your financial statement is in terrible shape. You only have $20 in the bank. You've just recently lost your job and you have thousands of dollars of debt. No bank in its right mind is gonna lend you the money you need for a house. Now that's the bad news. What could be worse than that? But here's the good news. Your father is Elon Musk. <laughs> and the good news is he has more than enough money. Even after the Twitter fiasco, he's got more than enough money to cover your debt. He has $203 billion. He is the wealthiest man in the world. And he says to you, you know, I realize you've had some financial setbacks. You can't afford that house. But when you go to the bank 
Instead of showing them your financial statement, you can show them mine. I'll be responsible for that $200,000 mortgage. Now, you've got a choice how you can respond to that offer from your wealthy father. You can say, forget it. I'm insulted that you say I don't have enough money. And furthermore, if the bank doesn't like my financial statement, they don't have to give me the loan I'll do without. Now, you can do that, and you will never have a house. Or you can say to your father, you know, Dad, you're right. I've made some poor decisions. I'm in debt up to my neck, and I thank you for your gracious offer. And if you will let me, I will take your statement and show it to the bank and let you be responsible for my debt. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is the most important truth in the universe. There's only one way any of us can secure a home in heaven. If we rely on our own financial resources, our own spiritual resources to get into heaven, we're going to end up short. We don't have enough righteousness in our spiritual bank to get into heaven. But Jesus Christ has more than enough. And he's willing to offer it if we will accept that through faith. That's what the Bible means when it talks about we are saved by God's grace that we receive through faith. You know, the Apostle Paul came to that understanding. He thought for a long time that as a Jew, he had enough spiritual righteousness to get into heaven. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he lists all of what he thought were his spiritual assets. He was a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee, a keeper of the law. He thought he had enough spiritual righteousness to get into heaven. But remember what he said in verse 7, those things that were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That is what I thought were spiritual assets were in fact liabilities because they blinded me into thinking I had enough. It kept me from receiving the grace of God. But then he had that experience on the road to Damascus that changed his perspective on everything. The things I thought that were assets were liabilities. And he says in verse nine, and now this is my prayer, that I might be found in him, Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So here's the bottom line question. Are you depending on your righteousness to get into heaven or the righteousness that comes from faith in Jesus Christ? Abraham believed God and his faith was credited as righteousness. You may say, well, that's great, but how can I know for sure God is going to save me? Abraham had the same question. In verse 8 of Genesis 15, he said, Oh Lord, how may I know that I will possess the land? How do I know these promises are going to be fulfilled? So God said to Abraham, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these to God and he cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other but he did not cut the birds. What in the world is going on here? 
In Abraham's day, if two kings were to enter into a bilateral contract with each other, where they made a contract with each one having responsibilities to fulfill that covenant, if two kings were to make a covenant, this is the practice they would follow. They would take these animals, they would cut them down the backbone, they would place them on opposite sides, and then the two monarchs would each hold a torch and they would walk together between the animal pieces. It was signifying that they each had responsibility and because of the blood involved in cutting the animals, they were basically saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I die. And so this is a way God was going to seal the covenant with Abraham. Abraham took the animals, he sliced them in two. He was ready to walk with God between the animal pieces, but then something very strange happened. Notice what God did in verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. In other words, when it came time to ratify the covenant, after Abraham had sliced the pieces of the animal in two, God put Abraham to sleep. Abraham was fast asleep, and it was God himself who held the torch and walked between the animal pieces signifying that the guarantee of this covenant was not Abraham and his faithfulness. It wasn't a conditional covenant. It was an unconditional promise that God made, not with Abraham, but God made with himself. God made the covenant. God was responsible for keeping the covenant. Now, lest you think I'm reading too much into that, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6, verses 13 and 14. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore to himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that's great news for Abraham. But what about for us? Listen to me, God has made another eternal covenant with you and with me. He says, if you will in humility admit your sin and your need for forgiveness, I will send my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save you. And if you trust in him, you will have eternal life. Jesus said to his disciples the night before he was crucified, he said, this is the new covenant I make with you sealed in my blood. It's a blood covenant, just like those two kings would make in the Old Testament. It was a blood covenant that God has made with us. If we will simply acknowledge our need for a savior and trust in faith, we shall be saved but how do I know God will keep his covenant? Because he has made it an unconditional covenant. And throughout the New Testament, you see that. It is not we who are responsible for keeping the covenant. It is God. God has promised us that he will save us to the uttermost if we will simply trust in him. Isn't that what John 10, 28, and 29 says? 
for I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. No man shall snatch out of my hands those whom the Father has given me. Or Romans eleven twenty nine 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Or Hebrews seven twenty five, God is able to save to the uttermost those who trust in him and draw near to him. Or 2 Timothy chapter 2, for even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Or Jesus' own words in John chapter 3, 14 and 16, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him has eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes, trusts in, clings to him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen to me, it is God alone who can save us, and it is God alone who can keep us saved. God's gift, God's calling is irrevocable. And that's what Abraham did. He believed God. And in that great accounting room of heaven, God took the little bit of faith Abraham had, and he exchanged it for the righteousness of Christ based on his death for us all. You know, the greatest Baptist preacher who ever lived was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he describes the night that he was saved. He had wandered into a little primitive Methodist church. And that night the pastor was gone. And so a layman was giving the message. He was uneducated. He butchered the king's English, Spurgeon later said. But his text was Isaiah 45, 22. He read the text. Look to me. And be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And then the preacher launched into his message. The text says, look, look, look. It don't take no effort to look. You don't have to raise a hand or lift a foot. All it says is, look, look. You don't have to be college educated. You don't have to earn a thousand pounds a year. All you have to do is look. But notice also the text says, look unto me, look unto me. Don't look to yourselves. There's no comfort in looking at yourself. Look to God, look to God. And then the preacher noticed Spurgeon on the front row as a young man. He could tell he was uncomfortable. And he addressed him directly and said, young man, you look miserable. And guess what? You're gonna be miserable, continue to be miserable in this life and in your death if you don't obey the text of this verse. And then lifting his hands to heaven, the preacher said, look, look, look to Christ. There is nothing you are to do but to look and to live. And that night, Charles Spurgeon said, he gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ by looking and receiving God's unconditional gift of salvation. Let me ask you, what are you looking to to save you when you stand before God? If you're looking at yourself, you're gonna be disappointed. If you're looking at some act of religion you did, like getting baptized or joining the church, that's not enough. If you look to others to save you, you're going to be found insufficient. Don't look to others. Don't think because you're better than other people, you're going to make it into heaven. There is only one way to be saved. It is to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and live. 
Abraham believed God. He believed the promises of God and his faith was counted as righteousness. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.